you navigate change? It's a question we think about often and one that today's world expects us to be comfortable with. The challenge, however, is where do you begin and how do you develop the mindset and skill set to be successful? Welcome everyone to the Sprint to Success with Design Thinking podcast. I'm your host, Saba Kidwai. Join me each week as I share the stories and strategies from the world's leading researchers and practitioners about why they believe the answer lies in practicing design thinking. Welcome, everyone. I'm your host, Saba. Many of you know me online as Ask Miss Q, and I really could not be more excited to be launching this new show at the start of a new decade. What better time than the start of 2020 to begin thinking about how we can develop the mindsets and skill sets we need to thrive in today's world with design thinking? So what is design thinking and how can it help you? Duncan Wardle is the perfect person to answer this question. He was the former vice president of innovation and creativity at Disney, where he was the catalyst and creator of many of the mad ideas, as he calls them, that you've seen from one of the world's most treasured brands. He'll be sharing many things, but one of my favorites is how he teaches the power and strategy of asking what if. Today, Duncan is one of the world's most sought after speakers on design thinking. He's a must-follow online, where he shares all his travels and insights from the different workshops and keynotes that he delivers. That wasn't where he started, though. You're going to be so inspired by his journey and his infectious passion for helping everyone rediscover the curiosity and creativity that they were born with. In recording for this podcast, I was reminded of just how privileged we are today to learn anything, anytime, anywhere with anyone. Today's episode with Duncan is really an example of just how powerful the tools and platforms that we have today really are. I hope you enjoy and learn so much from this conversation, and we would love to have you share your takeaways by tagging me online at askmissq, A-S-K. MSQ. And here, everyone, is my conversation with Duncan Wardle. Hi, Duncan, and welcome to Sprint to Success. I'm so honored to have you here today. Thank you. This entire podcast is really about helping people understand design thinking and understand the changing dynamic of just skills that the world is really looking for. So I wanted you to kind of open by sharing why design thinking and what are the four skills that you believe people excel over compared to machines? Design thinking. Why design thinking? Because it's actually, when we say design thinking, people go, oh, these people must be gurus. They must know what they're doing. Oh, my God, these design thinkers, they're so great. Guess what? Called common sense. Find out what the consumer wants and give it to them. That's called common sense. My mother would tell you design thinking is common sense. But here's the challenge. From 1920 to 2020, we didn't. We were all very product-centric. We were driven by Wall Street. Right? We build it, they will come. Disney built theme parks, Coca-Cola made soft drinks, Walmart made stores. And for 100 years, it worked. And we didn't have to care about the consumer. And suddenly, in the next 10 years, we've got artificial intelligence scheduled to, uh, to according to the editor of Wired magazine at Open World in San Francisco two weeks ago, he said artificial intelligence will eliminate 20% of the jobs in North America in the next decade. So we've got robots that we'll compete with that will be thousands of times more intelligent than us by 2030. We've got blockchain making the world completely transparent. We've got data getting better and better and better and better. And everybody's watching and investing in the tech side of the house, and they should. 
not enough people are watching Generation Z, a generation who cares more about purpose than profit. They don't care about your quarterly results. In fact, they don't like the fact that your CEO makes millions of dollars and your frontline cast members have to go to a food bank every day, and they will challenge it. South Park was a beginning. Greta was a beginning. They will bring down government and they will bring down companies. If they don't believe in what you stand for, not only will they not buy your products and services in the next 20 years, they don't want to work for you. Why is it that everybody who's 18 or less wants to be an entrepreneur? Because they don't trust big corporations. Because they grew up through 9-11. They grew up through the mortgage crisis of 2009. And when you watch their mums and dads and aunts and uncles got laid off, that's why they want to be entrepreneurs. They don't trust you. And so um, so the challenge is for a lot of companies now, design thinking is to first, I think, that before we get just into the design thinking and looking for what consumers are looking for is, if you ask most companies what's their purpose, they don't know. And if you ask employees of a company, describe what's your purpose, what's your why, why is it you do what you do? You'll get a different answer from every single employee. Most companies think purpose is um, a philanthropic cause. It's not. That's a philanthropic cause. Purpose is what you stand for. Why, why, what, what gives you the right to sell me anything? And so I was asked recently to give a talk to the world's largest tool manufacturer. They make more hammers, chisels, and saws than anybody else. I thought, gosh, I know nothing about them. I know nothing about their consumer design thinking principle. Go meet one. So I spent a day in Home Depot and Lowe's watching and listening to their consumer at the point of purchase. And I went back to talk to the world's largest tool manufacturer and I said, guess what? They're not talking about your brand. They don't care who you are. They're not talking about your products, the hammer, the chisel, or the saw. They're not even talking about your price point, $14.95, $22.50. What they're talking about very animatedly and excitedly amongst themselves is what's important to them, consumer-centric, What's important to them is, if you listen to them, go, go to a home depot one day, just say, we're going to build our dream kitchen. We're going to build our dream bathroom. Oh, my God, I'm so excited. We're going to build our dream house. Your purpose, if you choose to create one, Mr. and Mrs. Tool Manufacturer, is you could be the brand who helps people build their dreams. And you could see the finance guys rolling their arms and saying, how's that going to deliver my quarterly results? It might not deliver your quarterly results, but it might save your job, and it might save your industry. Why? If you're the brand who helps people build their dreams, what other lines of business could you be? Could you be in hospitality? Yes. Sports? Yes. Automotive? Yes. Banking? Yes. Finance? Insurance? Yes. You're the brand that helps people build their dreams. You could be in education. But no, we need tools. And our definition of innovation isn't its iteration. We're going to expand into Mexico and India. They have a growing middle class. They will buy our tools. What a very arrogant approach. Um, <clears throat> by the way, they won't. Uh, because 3D printing will eliminate the tool industry by 2030. It won't exist anymore. We're building houses in Houston, Texas today on a 3D printer. China has just announced they're going to build a city in the next three years on a 3D printer. They're printing hearts in Hyderabad, India today for a surgeon to model before they operate on a 3D printer. Amazon spent billions of dollars on shipping last year. Do you think Amazon wants to continue to spend billions of dollars on shipping? No, they want you to print it at home. I put it to you that somewhere between the year 2030 and 2035, 35% of what you buy on Amazon today, you will print at home. If you can print anything you want on demand 10 to 15 years from today, what will you be using a hammer, a chisel, or a saw for? No, you won't. They'll be in a museum. But if you were the brand who helps people build their dreams, you could have got out of the tool industry and got into any other industry you want. But they don't think that way. And therefore, that company and that industry will be eliminated by 2030. Absolutely. No, I, I think that was a really great kind of big picture lay of the landscape of just, I think, what so many young people can expect to be walking into today. So in that kind of environment and thinking about design thinking, what are some of those core skills that you think differentiate individuals from 
AI, blockchain, and just in a landscape like that? Well, I think there's four I focus on in particular that I think will be the most employable of the next decade. We're all born with all four. The last few decades, the employment skill sets were we paid and focused most on those people who could deliver strategic thinking, critical thinking, planning, strategy, analysis, and they were right for their time. However, I put it to you that in the next decade, all of those skill sets will and can be replaced by artificial intelligence. However, you were born a little girl and you got your first big toy. It was a huge toy. It came in a massive box. Christmas Day took you ages to unwrap the gift. You eventually got it out of that huge box. What did you spend the rest of the day playing with? The box. Yes, of course. Why? Why did you play with the box? You wonder what's inside and what more you can do. Like you can undo the box. You can do like, you know, make it different ways and all of that. Because the box was anything you wanted it to be. It was a castle. It was a fort. It was a rocket ship. It was. And, and up until about the age of six, you could see the castle and the fort. And, uh, but what happens at the age of six? What do you do at the age of six that you didn't do before? You, I guess somewhere sure. along the way, you kind of learn that there's just things that you're supposed to do and not supposed to do. We go to school and the teacher tells us it's just a box. And suddenly, instantly, our creativity and our imagination starts to get compacted. And yet we were all born creative. We all used to play in the box. Um, we were all born curious, all of us. Curiosity, another skill set. Do you have children? No. Okay, you sound quite young. Uh, do you have nieces and nephews? I do. Okay, cool. Uh, are they quite young? They're very young. Yeah, we used to have our first nephew. He's uh, just turned one. Oh, hi, Chiquita. Well, so... <laughs> But what's the question? Think about when you were young or think about kids who are in that four or five. What's the first question they ask you? Oh, my gosh. Well, it's so interesting watching my nephew. It's, he's just looking everywhere, just looking right. everywhere, taking everything in. But I feel like like right. if I think about my cousins, it's always kind of just like questions about why or how why, or... Why? Why? Why do children ask why four or five times? Because... They are consumers, they're design thinkers, they are consumer-centric, they are looking for the core consumer truth. They won't stop at the first why. Then we go to school and we get a job and we're told there's only one right answer. So we stop looking for the second why. The real insight for innovation comes on the fourth or fifth why. If you ask somebody, why do you go to Disney, they'll say, I go for the ride. Well, that tells me to spend a couple of hundred million dollars on a new attraction, capital investment stretch. But if you pause for a moment and act childlike, not childish, they say, well, why exactly do you go for the ride? Well... I, I just, I love Small World. Why, why on earth do you love Small World? I remember music. Why is that important to you? Oh, well, I used to go with my mother. Well, why is that important to you? Well, I take my daughter now. What that person has just told you on the fourth or fifth way has got nothing to do with the capital investment strategy whatsoever. What she cares about is her memory and her nostalgia. That's a communication campaign, not a build. But if we stop at the first way, and very often our data stops at the first way, so you don't get to the real insight for innovation. So we talked about creativity, talked about curiosity, imagination. Think of that weird dream last week that you had with David Beckham and Beyonce and a unicorn that you don't want to tell anybody about. But we've all had the weird dreams. Right? <laughs> it might not be David Beckham and Beyonce, but hey, we've had the one with the unicorn. So we all have a vivid imagination. It's all still there. And then there's intuition. Right? You, so, so I want you to be honest. <clears throat> Tell me if you've ever looked at the back of the head of somebody and you think, oh, man, that person looks really hot. And that person immediately turned around and stared at you and you had to look away quickly. <laughs> yeah, I probably have. <laughs> right? Of course we have. Course we have right? <laughs> so how did that person know that you were looking at them? It's called intuition. Um, you have 100 billion neurons in your 
your brain, you have 100 million neurons in your stomach. Think about the clothes you're wearing right now, or the last place you went on holiday, or the last restaurant you went to, or the last um, dress you chose to buy, or uh, all the other products and services that you consume as a consumer every single day. Did you make that decision strategically? Hell no. You see, you went with your intuition. Intuition is a remarkably powerful computer. And I'll tell you a story about how, just how, how strong. We were tasked by Disneyland Paris to get more people to come more often and spend more money. Our big data told us who could afford our brand, who had an affinity to the brand, who was shopping online. And our big data told us who was a 10 out of 10 of upcoming this year. Guess what? They didn't come. So that told me that our big data was missing something. And I put it to the organization that these, the British people that were filling out the survey, if they were a 10 out of 10 of upcoming this year for the last five years and they didn't come, they were either liars or procrastinators. And I went to set out to prove it. So off we went, we got out of our big data, which was telling us to spend hundreds of millions of dollars on new, new attractions, and we spent a day with a consumer in 26 different houses, 26 of us. Now, you're too young, but uh, let's see. So the house that I was in, there was a photograph on the mantelpiece, and I asked the lady, how old are the children, love, four or five? She goes, no, 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 they're 14 or 50. You write it down, it's one clue. It's an individual clue. It means nothing to you. When you get back together... All 26 of you, you've got the same clue. When I asked how old the children were in the photograph in the living room, they were anywhere from 5 to 25 years older in reality. Now your intuition kicks in and says there's something our big data has missed. How do I know that photograph exists? Because I know that you're, you're too young and don't have children yet, but I guarantee if you close your eyes right now and you look at your parents' living room, there's a dorky photograph of you, probably from fourth or third grade that you wish they'd thrown away years ago, but they still have proudly in their living room, but you don't want to take your boyfriend or girlfriend home because God knows you don't want them to see that photo. Every household has that image. So that's my intuition kicking in, telling me there's something here. What Do we not print photographs of our children anymore? Yes, we do. So we went back and asked the mum some more questions, and here's what we heard from the average parent. I want my child to grow up. I want them to go to kindergarten, junior school, middle school, high school, college, graduate, be happy, healthy, and successful. That's what we want for our kids, right? No, it's not. Here's what we found. We want our little kids, back in that photo frame, when we walk in the door at night, we're going to God, we're going to hear us. And so I thought, there's something here and we're missing. Let's dig a bit deeper. Now, I'm a dad. I can use my own intuition. So 26 mums will tell you the same story. They all talk of these three bittersweet transitions that take place between a parent and a child. Once you cross through that transition, you both instantly want to step back, but you can't. It's too late. So, but I'm a dad. I've got kids. I know exactly where I was for all of each three of those transitions that they talked about. The first one uh, was James was 10, my son. Uh, we were in Monterey, Mexico. It was Christmas Eve. He came around the door of Abelito's bedroom. His eyes, you know when children's eyes are half full of tears, they're just bubbling up, yeah. just about to burst out crying. <laughs> and he looked at me and goes, Papa. I said, what? He goes, are you Santa Claus? And in that one second, it was like a bullet hitting me in the stomach. It's like, oh, imagination, creativity, Batman, Superman, Spider-Man, clouds gone in that one second. What hurt so much was what he had obviously really said. Because I'm not your little boy anymore, Daddy. I'm growing up. That hurts. Now, you will not remember where you were that fateful day, but when you get off this podcast interview, I want you to text or call your dad, and I want you to ask him the question. Because you won't remember where you were, and you won't remember that it happened. He does, and he'll ask you in a nanosecond, and he'll ask you very specifically, because it is a seminal moment between a father and a daughter. I was in Kissimmee, Florida. I was outside Kirkland 
store, Michael's Craft Store, is coming up on the left-hand side. There's a car coming towards me. I'm outside by the curb. My daughter's inside. I mean, she's 13 that Tuesday morning. But then she dropped my left hand in public for the first time because she didn't want to hold daddy's hand. That'll break your heart. And by the way, I challenge you. Get off this call. Go call your dad. And he will know exactly where he was the day you dropped his hand for the first time. And he'll tell you if it was his right hand or left hand. Oh, my gosh. It was a seminal moment between a father and a daughter. The last one for us was last December. My daughter graduated from university. And uh, actually, I'm standing in the bedroom as I can because I'm not going to my daughter's bedroom. I've only been once since she left. I can't walk into her bedroom because I cry because it's tidy and it's quiet and it's empty. So we went and we flew up to Manhattan. We got her into her apartment. We packed her in. We hugged, we cheered and we laughed. And then my wife and I closed the doors of the apartment, got in the Uber and cried our eyes out all the way to the Guardia Airport. (laughs) And so don't forget, our going in hypotheses, our big data told us, if we build it, they will come. We'll spend $240 million on the attractions, they'll come. What we found by living living the principles of design thinking, get out of your data, get out of your focus groups, go and spend a day with your consumer, and you just might find an insight for innovation you can't find anywhere else. And what we found was that mum does not wake up in the morning worrying about whether or not her children, or whether or not Disneyland Paris has new attractions this year. She wakes up every single morning worrying about how quickly her children are growing and how she wants to make special memories for them while they still believe, while they still hold my hand, while they're still here. That's a communication campaign, not a capital investment strategy, uh, one that stopped us from spending $240 million on something she didn't ask for in the first place and drove intent to visit by 20% and turned a very product-centric organisation into a very consumer-centric one where it is now mandatory for every Disney executive to work in a park one day a year in a frontline cast member position and every two years to go and live in the living room of a consumer. So... The other you know, design thinking principles. Have you ever been to a focus group, by the way? I have, actually, yeah. I did one for okay. um, a car once. Okay. Um, you know how you sit behind that two-way mirror and you kind of stare at people? Yeah. Right, okay. Do you live in a house or an apartment with a two-way mirror with people staring at you, by the way? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. No, but nobody does, right? So do you think that's a relaxed environment to get real insights for innovation? No, of course it's not. It's nonsense. We invite in 12 individuals because we want our value for money. We spy at them through a window. They know we're on the other side, so they're not relaxed. And by the way, if you interview individuals, they lie. And when I say lie, I mean it in the kindest possible way. But they tell you the white lies, the, you know, they, the bit of bravado. So if you, invite, if you invite Dad to a focus group and say, what do you do at Disney World? He'll go, oh, I drink beer and go on to a thrill ride. I'm a manly man. If, on the other hand, he's in his living room, seated next to his wife, She's going to bust him and say, no, 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 dear. You did Small World 17 times back to back last year and you really loved it. And so you get real insights out of couples that you'll never get out of individuals. You get real insights out of getting into their houses because you will find things and see things that may have been in your data buried on page 37, bullet point 14, and you can't see it. You can't feel data. Going back, we're all born creative. We're all born with amazing imagination. We used to say why, why, and why again, then we stopped. And we're all born with intuition. And in the next decade, and I've asked a couple of AI experts, because they know far more about AI than I, I do, I've asked them, I said, do you believe artificial intelligence will replace or could, could we program creativity, imagination, curiosity, and intuition in the next decade? And uh, irrevocably, everybody said no. Therefore, I put it to you that the strongest skill set the human race has to offer in the next 10 years 
are actually the things we're born with, the things that we've been told to bury for years because they weren't important, will become some of the most employable skill sets for the next decade simply because they can't be programmed. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I want to dive back into some of those skills a little bit later, but I'd love to have people learn a little bit more about your background, because I think so much of what you talk about is so embedded in your own personal journey from the time that you, you know, found that internship at your university to your position at Disney. Can you talk a little bit about how you found your purpose and how you came into doing the work that you do? Well, I wanted to be an ancient Egyptologist. I was going to be an archaeologist. This was way before Indiana Jones. And I was suddenly, I was at Edinburgh University in Scotland, looking at the notice board to see if I'd been chosen for the rugby team for the weekend or not. And there was a picture of Mickey Mouse. How do you do it? So it's a chance to meet an American. Oh, what's an American? So I went along to the interview. And at the end of the interview, this lady was seated when I walked into the room behind one of those skirted tables. And at the end of the interview, she stood up. Well, don't forget, this is the first American person I've ever met. (laughs) Well, Becky, lovely lady, she's six foot five. She's from Texas. And as she stood up, all I could remember was hearing 2001 Space Odyssey playing inside my head, thinking they can't all be that tall. Um, Anyway, so there was a chance to come and represent Great Britain at Epcot, if you've ever been to Epcot. My very first job, September 1986, Barman, Rosencrown Pub. I met my wife there. She was, I was a barman in the Russian Grand Pub. She was a Mexican Aztec goddess on the other side of the lake. So we got married 32 years ago. I then went back and joined Disney in London. Uh, my very first assignment was the raw premiere of Blue uh, Frame Roger Rabbit, 1988, in the presence of the Princess of Wales, Princess Diana. This was the day when I found out what a contingency plan was, because my job was simply to stand at the bottom of the stairs. Roger Rabbit would come down the stairs. Princess would come in along the receiving line. And if she chose to engage with Roger at the bottom of the stairs, great. If she went into the auditorium, tough. So you think, okay, how could you possibly screw that assignment up, right? So I'm standing at the bottom of the stairs, minding my own business. Roger comes bouncing down the stairs. What a contingency plan will tell you. The average step on a stair is about the same length as your foot. Well, if you're a six-foot rabbit and your feet are three foot long, Roger tripped over his own feet with six steps to go, and he goes hurtling through the air towards, directly towards the head of the Princess of Wales, Diana where two royal protection officers took him out in midair with guns drawn. There's a very famous photograph, you can still find it on Reuters, with Roger on the floor, two Secret Service guys on top of him with guns pointed at his head, and a 22-year-old man called Duncan in the background looking totally <laughs> like a frozen rabbit, like, shit, I'm fired. So I didn't go to the office the next day. I thought, God, I'm fired. I got a phone call from my boss. He said, where are you? I said, I'm at home. He said, why? I said, well, I assume I was fired. He said, no. This is exactly the public that he for Roger Rabbit. I go, wow, I could make a career out of this. And so for the first 20 years, my job was simply to have the ideas that I didn't know I could pull off. If you know that you can do it, it's iteration, it's not innovation. And so I came up with all the bad ideas. I came up with the idea of sending Buzz Lightyear into space for the opening of Toy Story. I hadn't talked to NASA at the time, <laughs> but I ended up sending my son Buzz Lightyear. You can Google it, you can find it on YouTube, because Buzz's dream, right, was to fly, but he couldn't fly. I said, well, what if we could take Buzz Lightyear's dream come true? So we did. He's the longest serving astronaut in space. If you go on YouTube and type Buzz Lightyear in space, you will see him fly in space. Um, and so I built a swimming pool down Main Street, USA, for Michael Phelps to swim down. I helped um, Pixar come up with some of the... So Pixar, the genius of Pixar isn't the ability to tell a story. It's the ability to find the core and to the truth. I grew up in the 60s. Cowboys were gods. Debbie Crockett, John Wayne, Sheriffs. I had, the, I had the tassels. I had the hat. I had the badge. And then one day, this man came down the steps and said, 
one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. And suddenly we were like, oh, screw the cowboys, I'm going to be an astronaut. Well, Toy Story was written for me. When you were a little girl, did you have a monster under your bed or in the closet? I did. Of course you did. Monsters Incorporated clearly written for you. Have you seen the film Inside Out, the one with the girl and her emotions? Yes, I have. <laughs> right. Are you or are you not a part of your day today consumed by joy? Always. And then suddenly somebody makes you angry and suddenly you're angry. Then somebody does something you hate and you're full of disgust. We, <laughs> so these aren't just stories. These are stories embedded in core consumer truth that we can all relate to. That's what makes them so strong. So um, I did a Super Bowl halftime show. I was helping to design some new lands. And then I got a call and said, you're, you're the guy with all the big ideas. You're going to be in charge of innovation creativity. I was like, well, what the hell is that? Uh, and my boss said, don't know, go figure it out. So we surveyed 5,000 people at Lucasfilms, Pixar, Marvel, Disney Park, ESPN, ABC, and asked them what were the barriers to be more innovative and more creative. We found five. And this, I think, will probably relate to a lot of your listeners. Number one, always number one, I don't have time to think. Number two, um, consumer insight is underused. We're a product-centric organization. Number three, we're risk-averse. We've got quarterly results. Number four, ideas get stuck, deleted, or killed in this process. Number five, we've all got a different definition of innovation, so we're all heading in different directions. So we tried four models of innovation. Model number one, I hired IDEO and said, make me look good, because I thought they would know what they were doing. Um, that was great. They ran great projects. But when they left and you had an honest conversation with yourself about what have we learned, how we learned about what they do, the answer was we hadn't because it wasn't in their best interest to show us how they do what they do or we wouldn't hire them again. Model number two, we're going to create an innovation department. I'm going to be in charge of it. What could possibly go wrong? <laughs> well, when you're a team of 20, 25 people and an organization of hundreds of thousands, are you really having, you know, you can be a catalyst for change, but you also send a subliminal message to the rest of the organization. You're off the hook. You don't have to innovate. We've got an innovation team. Model number four, we created an accelerator model where we brought in young startup tech companies and partnered with them because they had something very new, very cool, very innovative, but they didn't know how to scale it, bring it to market. Disney does that very well. So that worked very well in bringing products and services to market quicker. But none of these models helped embed innovation into everybody's DNA. And if you listen to all the chair people around today, the chairperson, saying, we must innovate, you must take risks. We must be brave. We must think differently. And all of their employees are sitting there going, great, how? How do I do it? And nobody's showing people how. So having been at Disney for 30 years, um, head of innovation creativity, people think I'm mad because I left. No, I'm not mad. There's this monstrous gap in the market that I'm able to fill by going into organizations and teaching them how, by making innovation easy, creativity tangible, and the process fun. A lot of companies hate the word fun because they think it doesn't apply business results. You can't change a culture by talking about it and hiring a head of HR and doing some, oh, let's do some compliance training. Oh, yeah, great. Boring. People have to want to change. And the only way you can get them to do it is by giving them a toolkit that they choose to use when you're not there. A toolkit that makes innovation easy, creativity tangible, and the process fun. So Fred and Sally have worked for you for a year or 20 years choose to use it when you're not there. That's culture change, and that's what I do now. And I love it because, look, the last six weeks, I've been in 10 European countries, three Asian countries, India, which I adore, Colombia yesterday, I'm back in the States today, I'm leaving to Bogota tomorrow, and every time I go overseas, I always ask whoever I'm going to, hey, is there a local not-for-profit or a school or a university where you would like me to come and give a keynote as part of me coming? I'm not going to charge you any more money. 
because I'm really passionate about it because I grew up in an organisation where we were told you're not creative. The creatives are on the second floor. Bullshit. Everybody's creative. I do not define creativity as the ability to paint, write music or do graphic design or write movies or act. I define creativity as the ability to have an idea and everybody can. And I define innovation as the ability to get it done. All I do is help people remind them that they're creative, show them how to be again and give them the tools to innovate. It's about taking something that is design thinking. Oh, I'm so intelligent. No, it's not. It's common sense. Just make it easy, tangible and fun. And, and I love that because you keep bringing it back to this idea of common sense, this idea that we're born with all of these things. What is it in particular you think about design thinking that makes it common sense? And how might a student, say like someone like me or, you know, just like you're thinking about our high school or college students today, begin to kind of dive into this before they get to an organization? Understand your consumer. Go and spend a day with them. Go and watch somebody in a shop how they shop, where they shop, what they do, why they buy, what they... Go, go and live with somebody for a day in their house and find out what's important to them. Big data is very good and it's getting better and better and better. But if we're only looking at big data, we're only looking where our competition is looking. Therefore, how will we find that one insight that, uh, that is an insight for innovation? Um, I would argue probably the biggest single skill uh, that uh, a, good consumer, uh, a good consumer-centric design thinker has is the ability to listen and empathy. Listen and empathy. Hear what's important to your consumer and design something, design something for what they're asking for. Absolutely. And I think in that, you know, the listening and just all of those other things, you know, you bring up a lot about like how you have this confidence to just like run with ideas. Like for 22 years, like you are the person who is just mm-hmm. confident enough really to kind of come up with these ideas and whatnot. I feel like a lot of times, a lot of people say that in organizations, people are also told, like, you know, like when you're younger, like, stop asking so many questions, like, or the the new ideas can sometimes frustrate people. And you shared a really beautiful article in Strive Project about the power of asking what if. And I was wondering if you could share a little bit about where you got the confidence to just run with ideas or how you pitch those ideas and why asking what if is important. So there's a couple. There's what if and there's yes and. What happens is, and we're at a unique tipping point in time, and it's truly unique. Up until literally today, we younger people always had more to learn from the older people than the other way around. And I don't believe that to be true anymore. And the older people are scared of that because it's intimidating. And so they choose to ignore the younger people uh, because it's frightening, because they're challenging the way they think. And yet Generation Z is pushing harder and harder harder organizations that lean in on their younger employees will be more successful. Because let's be honest, right? Whether we like it or we, whether we agree with it or whether we disagree with it, if you did a poll of the top 2,000 companies inside the United States of America today, I'll bet you their board is 80% male, 80% white, 80% um, 55 or older who care more about their retirement, their shares, and their bonuses, and they do the future of their company, right? <laughs> Am I going to take a risk and think differently? Hell no, I've got my retirement cover. And so that's a real challenge for companies that want to think differently. Well, guess what? You've got 22-year-olds inside your organization. So, and I'm, I will promise to come back to what this. Um, diversity. Most companies do not understand the power of diversity. Diversity is innovation. If somebody thinks different to you, if somebody looks different to you, they think different. And if they think different to you, they will help you think different. That, again, is called common sense. Most organizations do not have common sense. So, do you have a pen and a piece of paper? I do. 
Good. I'm going to name an object. You're going to draw it, uh, but you only get seven seconds to do it. Are you ready? Yes, absolutely. I would like you to draw a house. Seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. Pen down. Now, I want you to answer some questions for me. Why did you draw only one door? Why did you draw it in the middle? And why did you draw it on the ground floor? Why did you only draw two windows? And why are you so insecure that you put crosses? And what shapes the roof? I already know. It's a bloody triangle. So how much of that did I get right? Oh, my gosh. Everything except there's only one window. But everything else is correct. Okay, right. <laughs> right, because, because you jumped into your river of thinking of what you think a house should look like. So I was uh, asked to design a new retail dining and entertainment complex for Hong Kong business. I had in the room 12 white male American architects. That's called groupthink. I asked them to draw a house. I knew what they were going to draw. They drew what you drew. So I had in the room, and I would ask anybody, advise anybody when you're trying to think of new ideas, bring in somebody who doesn't look like you. Bring in somebody who doesn't work for you. Bring in somebody who doesn't work in your industry. So I invited into the room a young female Chinese chef. Because she wasn't American, she was Chinese. Because she wasn't 50, she was 25. Because she wasn't an architect, she was a, a chef. And because she was a girl, not a boy. Well, they all drew exactly what I knew they were drew, which is what you drew. She drew dim sum architecture with a round bamboo dish with dim sum sitting on top of it a chimney, and a little old lady waving out of the window. Well, we all laughed when we showed each other our pictures because we realized we stayed in our river of thinking what a house should look like. She gave us permission to get out of our river of thinking and consider audacious architecture. If anybody in the world could consider audacious architecture, it would be the Walt Disney Company. On the way out the door, somebody who wrote over her picture of Dintam architecture, distinctly Disney, authentically Chinese. Seven years later, the strategic brand position for the Shanghai Disney Resort became distinctly Disney, authentically Chinese. And wow. so diversity, people just don't understand the power of diversity. They think it's political correctness. And they, if you're Hispanic, do, do not, when you enter the workplace, do not let your employer say, oh, you should work on the Hispanic business. If you're African-American, do not let your employer say, oh, you should only work on the African-American business. Bullshit. So, so that means I should only work on the old white men's business. Imagine if somebody came to me and said, I only want you to work on the old white men's business. How offensive is that to anybody? And they simply don't understand that whether you're younger, whether you're female, whether you're male, whether you're gay, whether you're straight, whether you're Greek, whether you're British, whether you're Hindu, whether you're Muslim, I don't care, as long as you're different to me. Because that will help us innovate. I'm very passionate about that particular point, because again, it's common sense. I really like how you kind of frame that diversity conversation. I actually haven't heard it like that explicitly kind of explained before. So let's say you are a young professional and you are in that situation. What are some of the ways in which maybe before you get to an organization or in thinking about an organization you want to join that you can kind of either advocate for yourself or kind of just maybe share things that you're able to do or interested in doing before you even get to that situation? Yeah, I think to a certain extent, go and work on projects. So here's the thing. We all, we're all good at something, right? Whether you're good at finance, whether you're good at sales, whether you're good at legal, whether you're good, play the role of the naive expert. So if you're not good, if somebody else is working on something that you don't know much about, go sit in the session and have ideas and you'll be amazed. You, the role of the naive expert is not to solve the challenge for you. That is an unrealistic expectation. The role of the naive expert is to ask a silly question because they don't know about the industry or throw out the audacious idea uh, that nobody else will throw out because they're now unconstrained by your rules. So, so my advice would be go work on something you don't know anything about. 
I absolutely love that because today with the platforms and tools that we have, it is so easy to seek out those kinds of opportunities. All right. So I got to bring you back to the what if story because I just love this one. Well, here's the thing. And the other thing is is people enter the workplace. Don't let yourself get pigeonholed. Uh, Don't. So when you join big companies, they'll say, oh, you you need to work in publicity. You just write press. Well, great. Well, five years later, you're still writing press releases. You're no use to anybody. I would always argue the smaller the company you join to begin with, the more experience you will get in different areas. The more you'll learn what you like and don't like. My daughter called me recently and said, I don't like my first job. I said, good. I thought she was going to hit me. Because she's learning what she likes. Because she's learning what she likes and doesn't like. You don't have to like your first job. You have to understand what you like and don't like. That's a good place to be. And so... um, because here's the thing, as you grow up, you get more experience. And the more experience, the more expertise you get, the more you think one way. I'm really good in mad ideas. Other people are really good at engineering or sales or finance. And we're all really good at what we're good at. But we are being asked to stop thinking as we've always thought and think differently. Well, that's hard for all of us. So all I've designed is design a, a series of lateral thinking tools that help people think differently. One of the most powerful is called What If. It was actually originally used by Walt Disney for a film called Fantasia, which some of you will have seen. It was a film set to classical music. And Walt, in 1940, was such a visionary, he wanted it to mist inside the theatre during drip, 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 little April showers. He wanted heat pumps in during night on Bear Mountain. And the theatre owner said, no, too expensive, Walt. We're never going to do that. So Walt used this what-if tool. He listed all the rules of going to a movie theatre. It's dark, it's dirty, you have to go at that time. You can only watch one movie at a time. Um, you have to sit in a seat. I, Walt, can't control the environment in which you experience my character. So he said, well, what if I could? Well, that wasn't very provocative. So he said, well, what if I took my movies out of the theatre? Well, that was a provocative what if question in 1940. How the hell are you going to solve for that? If you know the answer, it's not innovation, it's iteration. He didn't know the answer. So he said, well, what if I took my movies out of this? Well, they couldn't be two-dimensional, they'd fall over. Well, what if I make them three-dimensional? Hmm. Well, if I make them three-dimensional, Cinderella couldn't live next to David Crockett and Jack Sparrow because people wouldn't be immersed in her story. Well, if, if, I, if, she was, if I was going to create walk-around characters, I'd have to have people play the role. Well, if, if I'd have to put Cinderella in different lands to keep people immersed. Oh, I know, I'll call it Disneyland. Now, fast forward to 2005, uh, we all used to go to Blockbuster Video, and the founder of Netflix was set up for paying late fees. So he listed the rules of going to Blockbuster Video. You had to drive to a physical store. You had to go during opening time. You had to be time and rewind. You could only get three at a time. You never get the one you want on opening day. You had to return it off there lately. And he said, what if there was no physical store? He didn't know how to do it at the time. He said, well, wait a minute. YouTube has already been around since the 90s. Well, YouTube only streams down at the content. Well, what if I create a service that just streams professional content? Nobody would have to drive to a store. I'd be open 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Everybody could rent as many as they want at one time. I'll cut the rental off at the end of 24 hours so nobody pays the late fee. I know, I'll call it Netflix. I'll take my idea to Blockbuster Video five times. They'll turn me down five times. I'll take them out of business in less than five years. Now, it's easy to look at Disney and Netflix and say, oh, they've got so much money and resources, they could do what they want. Not so. Walt was bankrupt in 1940. The Bank of America bailed him out. Uh, Reed Hastings was working out of a garage in 2005. But I'll give you a small example to bring it to life as Dr. Powell's tool. There was a company in Great Britain in the 1970s that used to make glasses that would drink out of. And um, they noticed there was too much breakage when the glasses were being wrapped in chips. So they went down to the shop door and watched their employees and listed the rules. 26 employees can play about cardboard boxes, 12 glasses to a box, 
glass is separated by corrugated cardboard, um, glass is being wrapped individually in newspaper, all employees reading newspaper. Mm. So that could be an issue. So somebody asked a relatively provocative what if question, what if we poke the eyes out? Well, that's against the law and it's not very nice. But because he had the courage to ask the provocative question, the more provocative your what if question, the further out of your river of thinking you will get. The lady sitting next to him said, well, wait a minute, why don't we just hire blind people? So they did. Their production went up 26%, breakage went down to 72%, and the British government gave them a 50% salary subsidy for hiring people with disabilities. So that's the what-if tool, and it's very good. The other one that's really good is where else? Uh, sorry, how else? How by simply re-expressing the challenge can I get you to stop thinking as you always think and get you to think differently? So I'm going to name a, a project that you and I are going to go into. Where do you live, by the way? Um, I live in California. Okay, whereabouts? Uh, Santa Clara. Okay, I'm coming to Santa Clara. You and I are going to go into business. We're going to open a car wash together, okay? So now tell me the three or four essential things we'll have to put in that car wash. Um, a machine to be able to wash the cars. Right. And okay. we'll need some people to help with people, right? just, yeah, machine, people. Right, machine, people. Right? Machine and people, whatever. Um, some kind of payment service. Payment service, what else? And uh, some kind of like fun waiting area while people are waiting for their cars. Okay, all right, okay. So we've got a machine, we've got people, we've got cash register and a lounge. Okay, great. Well, screw that. I'm actually coming to Santa Clara and you and I are going to invest in an auto spa. Oof. Now, what could we, what could you, what could we put in our spa? We could put a place for people to relax. What else can you put in a star? What else do you typically see in a star? A um, massage room, jacuzzis. Right, okay, right. Yeah, bing, bing, bing. So, masseuse, jacuzzi, aromatherapy, bing, bing. In less than 10 seconds, I took you out of your river of thinking of what you know to belong in a car wash, water, sponge, payment machine, cash register, and lounge. All I did was call it an auto spa, and you went immediately to masseuse and, uh, masseuse, uh, and aromatherapy. Walt was the genie of re-expressing the challenge. He said, we will not have any uh, customers in our park. We will only have guests. We will not have any employees. We will only have cast members. And with that simple re-expression of the challenge, you've created a level of hospitality that has never been replicated or never been duplicated at any moment in time. In 2011, if we had said, how might we make more money, which is what most companies do, um, we'd have put the gate price up at Disney World by 3%. People would have grumbled. We'd have made our fortune result. But instead by using design thinking and being consumer-centric. We said, how might we solve the biggest consumer pain point? Well, we all know the biggest pain point to go to Disney is standing in line. So we said, what if there were no lines? Didn't know how to do it. We said, well, what if we eliminated the front desk to our hotel? What if we took away the barrier, the entrance turns off? What if people didn't stand in line for their favorite attractions or character meeting groups or to pay for merchandise or to pay for food? Well, guess what? RFID technology had already existed for five years. We just invested in it, put it in a Disney's magic band, now, when you arrive at the entrance to the, your hotel, there is no front desk. It is your room key. There is no turnstile at four parks in Florida today. You don't wait to get into the park. Your reservation for your favorite character meeting greets and rides is on your bar, is on your uh, magic band. You touch and go. You touch an item of merchandise once, it goes to your hotel room. Touch it twice, it'll go to your house. You save your food on your smartphone. I'm going to Pinocchio's Village House for lunch today. I want to hop with pickles inside. I now walk in. Touch table 47, food comes fresh to me. Had we have asked how might we make more money, we'd have made 3% of that mention. But because we said how might we solve the biggest pain point, 
the average consumer in a Disney park today has 120 minutes of free time they didn't have four years ago. What has that resulted in? Record revenues on food and beverage, record revenues on merchandise, record guests intend to return, record guests intend to recommend. Um, simply by not asking, how might we make more money? But using design thinking principles and asking, how might we solve for the biggest consumer pain point? Big data, you want big data? 25 million visits a year, every second of every day, by what they touch, and telling us what they like and what they don't like, and informing the future design of every product and service inside of Disney That is such a beautiful story. I, you know, I've actually never been down to the one in Florida. I've only been to the one in California, and I feel like I have to experience that now. Right. <laughs> You've got your nephew. Come on. I know. I know. I know. Absolutely. Oh, my God. I can't wait to take him there. Um, So you you talk a lot about this was such a great conversation. And just to kind of close off, you talk a lot about this idea that we're all born with these skills and you've given us these strategies and whatnot. For people who are listening that are maybe thinking, well, you know, that's just not me. Like, I'm just not creative. Like, oh, I couldn't do that. (laughs) So that's what you say. (laughs) That's what I say. Everybody's everybody played with the box. All of you were born and you played inside that box until mummy threw it away. And you used to draw amazing things. And I so I watched a little girl in the shop last week. She was standing three or four places behind her mother who was paying. She was probably about three. And I couldn't, she certainly wasn't in that shop right then. I don't know if she was a unicorn right then or a princess, but she had an amazing imagination. We're all born with it. So um, be more playful. Be, you know, we're, so, so where are you and what are you doing when you get your best ideas? Oh, God, in the most randomest of places, like either walking or driving or... Right, right. So I've done this with 3,000 people. If you ask people, where are you and what are you doing when you get your best ideas, they'll say shower, bicycle ride, walking, commuting, staring at the wall. Nobody, even in a group of 3,000 people, has ever said at work. So think about the last big verbal argument you had with somebody. You were screaming at them, you were angry, you walked out of the room, you were really pissed off at them. You went over to your local Starbucks, you got a cup of coffee. It's five or ten minutes after the argument's over now. You're beginning to relax. What just popped into your head? Usually, like, either not a regret, but it's, like, a calmness, a sense of calm. Okay. What about the killer one-liner? What about that perfect line that you wished you'd use during the argument? Oh, yes, yes, yes. Oh, my God. That's with anything. Like, good, bad, like, yeah. The perfect perfect one-line, the one-line that you thought, shit, if I'd have said that, I'd have closed it out. I'd have killed it. But you didn't. You didn't deliver it during the argument, you never will. Why? Because your brain in an argument is very stressed and very busy. Same as your brain in the office. And we hear ourselves say, I don't have time to think. But the moment you gave yourself time to think, you stepped away from the argument or you stepped into the shower, you came up with a killer one line or a big idea. Why? Because 87% of your brain is subconscious. But when you're stressed and at work, the door between your conscious and subconscious brain is firmly closed and you can't access 87% of the capacity of your brain. But the moment you were playful, you came up with a big idea. So uh, all I do is I call them energizers. You can go to my site, it's called duncanwater.com, um, and look for energizers, um, and you'll find them. And they're just fun exercises that last two or three minutes. So I can't bring showers to work because that would not be, that would be ugly. But my job is to open the door between your conscious and subconscious brain to help you have big ideas. And all I do is a fun exercise called an energizer last for two or three minutes. The moment I hear laughter, I know I've opened the door between your conscious and subconscious brain. We can all laugh. We can all play. So anybody who says they're not creative, my advice would be go play more. Watch your children. I I'm, love not asking, I'm not asking people to play every minute of every day, but I am asking them to be playful when they're trying to develop big ideas. 
own. Absolutely. And I love that. I love that. So I've actually used one of your energizers um, during a presentation. Oh. And yeah, and I just, and I always think about you every time I do because of that exact phrase that you say that when people are laughing, that's when I know that we're ready. And I think it, it's just so true. Like we come into these spaces with a certain mindset, with certain norms of how we're supposed to behave and act and be thinking. And I just love so many of your strategies. So if somebody wanted to learn more from you um, about your strategies and really just kind of experience a lot of what you're talking about, where can they find you? What kinds of things do you offer? And um, I'll obviously link yeah. a lot of your the resources that you share in the show notes below, but where would you recommend people find you or how do you like to be reached to? Duncanmortal.com is probably the best resource, um, but I'm on LinkedIn. Um, uh, my, um, my call sign on all social is Duncan J. Wardle. Um, they can find me on LinkedIn, they can find me on Instagram, they can find me on Facebook, they can find me on... Um, on my website, there's a blog, and so I publish lots of stories there, and I'm starting to publish all the tools. I think there's one blog already on What If, which is a step-by-step guide on how to use it. I also run workshops, uh, and then I also do public masterclasses where I'll go into a city, I'll arrive, I'll announce it three months in advance saying, I'm going to be in City X. My next one is in Calgary uh, in March, where it's usually about $500 for the day, and people can come and they learn the entire uh, design thinking process. Yeah, no, I love that. And you know what? I want to talk just if you could really comment really quickly just on your social media and your use of it, because you do a really great job of tying in not just where you are, but also just a lot of these insights that you're sharing. Can you talk a little bit about like your perception of social media and just how you use it and why? So most people, let's face it, including me, in use social media, they look at me, aren't I great? Aren't I having fun? Oh my God, my life's so much cooler than yours. That's why we use it. Let's, let's not lie here. However, you, if you're in business, I would suggest you reverse that strategy and say, how can I give back? What value can I offer? How can I help somebody else? The more you help somebody, the more you transform how we think about ourselves and me, 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 and think of other people, the more successful you will be in social media and the more business you will get as a result. Then goes back to design thinking principles. Look after your consumer first. Yeah, I love that. The World Economic Forum actually in their latest like update on like future of jobs um, for 2022, they put as a trending skill leadership and social influence. And so it's interesting to hear your ideas about giving value and being consumer centric um, and taking them to that platform um, because it's something they're making a huge connection between, which I thought was really interesting. Well, the other thing, and I think I learned this one from my mother when I was probably six, I replied to everybody. I never, ever, ever ignore uh, a comment uh, an email, a tweet, ever. That's just rude. If you're that arrogant, piss off the planet and get off. I worked for Disney for 30 years. I ended up a head of innovation creativity and I would get emails asking me for all sorts of things. If I couldn't help, you'll get a response. My response is, I can't help. But you will get a reply and I just think that's common courtesy. And you know, I, I want to highlight that for a moment because a really big part of this podcast is really to inspire, you know, other young like students and just people that maybe aren't getting opportunities in traditional environments to know that people yeah. like you are excited to help. Because, you know, you think about me, I'm just a grad student at USC and here you are like former VP of Disney. And not only did you respond immediately, but do you want to share what you just told me like before we started recording about when the last time it was you were at home? Oh, <laughs> I was at home on October the 12th. I left on the 12th. I've been to, I think it was 10 European cities, five Asian cities, three Indian cities. I landed from Bogota, Colombia at 8 o'clock last night. I leave from Mexico at 9 o'clock tomorrow morning. But everybody who said, can we chat? I've got, believe me, from 9 a.m. It's now 3 p.m. I have not left my telephone. <laughs> 
But why not, right? But here's, here's my, now, the same advice I would give my daughter and son and have. Do what you love, you'll be really good at it, and you'll be successful. And don't let anybody ever tell you no. So the first day of my career, how did I get my job at Disney when I went back from Florida? I called the Disney office every day in London, every day for 27 days. So the receptionist got so fed up with taking my calls, they gave me a half-hour interview. From that, I became their coffee boy. And here's the genius that the young people have. They know what TikTok is. They know what Snapchat is. They know what Instagram is. Guess what? The 50-year-olds don't, and they're scared. But by golly, they'd love to know. So why don't you go and be their naive expert? Why don't you go and say, hey, let me show you how to use TikTok. Let me show you how to use Snapchat. No presentations, no PowerPoint, no why is it good for the business. Download it on their telephone and show them how to use it and become their first friend. You'll meet executives that you would wait years to meet otherwise. The other one is, by the way, ego. We've all got one. Let's not pretend we haven't, right? And when you're an executive, chances are your ego is bigger than everybody else's. And so all you have to do, this is, this is an easy trick, is write to David and say, David, I can't believe you are where you are today. I so admire what you've done. Would you mind giving me a cup of coffee and telling me how you got where you got? I'm telling you, they're going to do it because they've got an ego. And you will meet executives that you would never get to meet otherwise. But here's the thing. I did eight subjects at school. I did English language, English literature, chemistry, biology, math, uh, history. Uh, I can't remember what else. I was crap at math, crap at biology, crap at physics, crap at science. I was really good at history. I was really good at art. I love mad ideas. I'm really good at mad ideas um, because I love it. Well, if you do what you love, you'll be good. The only A I ever got in math was Anthony. <laughs> Guess what? I'm not in finance today for a reason. Um, do what you love and you'll be good at it. Fantastic. Duncan, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with all of us today. And we're so excited to follow you and to keep exploring and building and nurturing our curiosity and our creativity with these wonderful tools that you shared. So thank you so much. Cool. Thank you very much indeed. One of my favorite quotes from Walt Disney is we keep moving forward, opening new doors and doing new things because we're curious and curiosity keeps leading us down new paths. It's a quote that immediately came to mind in hearing Duncan talk about the importance of asking why. It's a question we loved asking when we were younger that many of us slowly grew out of. At the heart and center of the design thinking process is the practice of empathy. Empathy empowers us to move away from judgment and towards understanding that ultimately helps us generate new insights so we can become better at designing the products, services, and experiences, or anything it is really, that we're designing. My greatest takeaway from the art of practicing empathy and asking why is that when we begin with empathy, what we think is often challenged by what we learn. I hope this episode inspires you to once again begin asking why and that 2020 is the start of a decade where you begin to open new doors and do new things. Knowing what brings you here, hearing from you about what resonated, what specific ideas you enjoyed, and what questions you still have helps me design and deliver episodes that will be of value to you week after week. I encourage you to reach out to me and the guests that come on the show. I'll be tagging our handles in the show notes below, along with other resources that Duncan shared. 
Tagging people online or sending a DM is a great way for you to spread kindness, build your network, and continue the conversation with people you're learning from on this podcast. You heard from Duncan about how much he enjoys responding to those who take out the time to message him. So you can trust me when I say it absolutely makes someone's day when you tell them about the impact that they've had, not to mention the influence it can have on your career. You never know which conversations will lead to what opportunities. The work I do is driven by a quote I once heard from William Gibson. He says, the future is here. It just isn't evenly distributed. Leaving a review for the podcast helps others learn about the show, giving them the gift of knowledge and allowing this community to help share ideas and opportunities others may not even know exist. It's your turn to join the conversation by sharing what you enjoyed or what questions you still have. In a world where time and attention are so valuable, thank you for choosing to listen and for being a part of our Sprint to Success with Design Thinking community. 